0: Hello, and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today, we're talking to a remarkable woman who has spent time in both the science and business sides of the life sciences industry. Natalie Ma is currently Director of Business Development at Felix Biotechnology a seed stage biotechnology company working to accelerate the deployment of novel biotherapeutics to manage infectious diseases using their proprietary phage technology. She helped launch Felix Biotech with Dr. Paul Turner when she was a Blavatnik Fellow in Entrepreneurship at the Yale Tech Transfer Office. As a fellow, she assisted eight faculty in developing ventures, primarily infectious disease, rare disease, and synthetic biology. Three of these ventures are venture backed, with collectively over three million dollars in funding. Prior to that, she was a healthcare consultant at Clearview and received her PhD in molecular biology at Yale.
1: Thank you, Natalie, for for joining us today. I'm excited. We I mean we talked earlier, like, and so I have a sense of your your background and such. But um, I know that you you started off as a synthetic biologist. And- now, you're director of business development at a biotech company, specifically Felix Biotech. Uh, but this by no means was a straight path. Uh, could you walk us through some of the key decisions that helped shape your career path, especially post-PhD um, and how you got to you know, first the Yale Tech Transfer Office and then later on to, to Felix Biotech?
2: Of course, happy to. And it definitely was not a linear path, which is sort of speaks to like one of the big takeaways I think I've learned over time, which is put a stake in the ground and run toward what you think you want to do, and then when you realize it's not what you want to do, pivot and figure out what related thing you can do that you actually want to do. So, I started with an undergraduate degree in environmental science, uh, was really passionate about the environment, actually, and sort of figuring out how we could build biotechnology tackle environmental problems, found that in order to really make an impact, I'd have to move toward more molecular biology. So applied to molecular biology PhD programs, um, had never had biochemistry, so got rejected from a majority of them. I think I got into two. Yale was one of those that was like, hey, just come and take biochemistry here in your first semester. And I was like, I can do that. Um, So that's how I ended up at Yale. And there I found a synthetic biology lab with the goal of engineering Uh, Organisms for bioremediation, which is like cleaning up things in the open environment, particularly was interested in plastic degradation, but ultimately found it to be difficult to build like a thesis around that and instead tackled a different problem that I found really interesting, which is when we have an engineered organism, how do we make sure it doesn't interact or go haywire out in open environments, right? Because it has the power to pick up genetic information and release genetic information into the environment. So, how do you make your system stable and work as expected? So did the PhD, like sort of tackling that question sort a biosecurity, biosafety question. And along the way, had a chance, wonderful encounter with Drew Endy at a Gordon conference. Um, So Gordon conferences are 100-person conferences, really small, great chance to meet sort of luminaries in your field. And he just said, what do you want to do with your life? And I was a third or fourth year grad student, was like, "Uh, I really like space. Uh, I'd like to go to space. And he's like, great. Well, we're going to need biology and space why don't you go build biotech for space travel? So I started running off in that direction. And the more I looked into the problem, the more interesting it became, right? It's like, how do you essentially build an earth on a spaceship that's small, contained, and will do everything you need that the ecosystems do here on our planet? Um, So along the way, realized that probably the most, one of the most viable ways to finance this, at least in parts was, you know, build companies, like build a startup, build a venture. Didn't have business experience when I finished my PhD. So I was like, how do I figure out business. So I joined a healthcare consultancy firm, uh, took a gap year in between there to travel. Uh, But after that, I was doing sort of healthcare slash management consulting with Clearview Healthcare Partners, learned a lot about how the healthcare system worked, uh, pricing market access, opportunity assessments, sort of the business side of biotech. And from there, the opportunity jumped up to uh, join the sort of Yale Tech Transfer Office in this one-year fellowship that we run called the Blavatnik Fellowship, which is essentially almost like a postdoc, but in entrepreneurship. So you come in, you sit within the tech transfer office, you help them evaluate which technologies are viable as new ventures. And then you do everything from building pitch decks to finding lab space, like strategy ops, market opportunities, you pitch investors, you do sort of, in my case, I also did clinical work. Um, So I was helping set up a clinical trial for one of the companies, uh, Felix and so yeah, just a great chance to sort of drink from the hose, as one would say. So from that, ended up working with about eight ventures. Three got backing um, to the tune of about two and a half ish uh, million dollars, uh, and ended up joining Felix because it was by far like, for me at least, the best fit in terms of like team and science. So it was like super cool. It's in, in infectious disease, which I'm super passionate about, and it's using phage to essentially engineer and modulate microbiomes, which is going to be, I think, the place we have one. Of Biggest issues with both going to space and, you know, as as we tackle like problems on Earth here as well.
3: I'd love to hear more about sort of the day to day within the tech transfer office and your overall experience at Yale and being at an you know academic institution.
2: Yeah, of course. So uh, the Blavatnik Fellowship, which I joined out after the healthcare into management consulting slash healthcare consulting, was Really interesting because it gets you into essentially a startup. The goal is to work with startups pre-seed rounds. It's like very early stage. The faculty comes with the technology of like, I think I'm ready for a startup. In terms of the experience day-to-day, it's a fantastic, this is going to sound really like simplified, but it's a fantastic exercise in task switching. Um, So it's like you have to do so many different things on any given week or day or like even small, like couple of hours. From figuring out how to build like a good-looking deck to coordinating meetings with faculty who have like really rough schedules um, to figuring out budgets and financing, like so it's anything and everything could happen in a given day. In terms of like sort of the projects that we would touch, well, for, taking a step back, like these these programs are sprouting up in a bunch of different places across the U.S. The Blavatnik Fellowship is the one at Yale. There's also a one at Harvard. Um, I believe Stanford has an analogous program in Spark. Um, so there, there are a lot of these that you can apply to once you, but they prefer to how you have some sort of expertise or business experience outside of the PhD, right? Because like often we find that like having that experience provides really good context for jumping into a new venture. So what we did was we often had technologies that were like amazing and we're gonna get funded with a series like a Cedar Series A round, to the tune of like millions, and they did not need Levontnik fellow help. These were often for faculty who had previously started ventures. They, they knew what they were doing. Um, and so we didn't touch those. We might do a little bit of help there um, setting them up or building a pitch deck. And then the second group were ventures that were ready to spin out. So like there was enough science behind them. They had a team pulled together. They were starting to figure things out. And that was where you wanted to spend your most time because was a viable venture that you might be able to jump into in a year. Like a year is not a lot of runway. to to launch a venture and then have it funded for you to jump into. And so that was sort of the second tier. And then like the third tier was often things where the the faculty felt like there was a venture there yet, but for a market reason or for a science reason, it wasn't ready. Um, And so they're what was trying to figure out, okay, what is the next step they could get to that would be a value inflection point of figuring out, you know, is there a venture here? Or should they look at a different application of the technology um because one of the challenges I think in in working on these new ventures is that faculty are really excited about their technology, and a lot of the times it is amazing technology, but it is not their job to say specifically what the market value is that is your job as an entrepreneur to figure that out and helping them narrow to that specific application that is the best first market and the total market the total direction they should go in can sometimes be challenging.
3: How can we teach academics and better orient them towards? Understanding concepts like market opportunity, or do you think it's sort of out of their wheelhouse? I think it. So I think it depends on the faculty member and what their
2: long term goals are. Because there are faculty that exit with their ventures. Um, I don't know if the academic institution would call it a success rate, but like the academic themselves might think that they want to be CEO um, of their own company, and that's that's their decision. But I think the the thing that we found most helpful was having successful academic entrepreneurs talk to the faculty interested in starting new ventures um, these were faculty who had been through the process and they understood what investors were looking for what investors were going to look at, like be interested in reiterate that it's not going to just be the science that wins the day right it's like you can have amazing science but it's not necessarily going to move the needle for a vc because they're going to want to see what the market op is and what the barriers to entry are like competition how bad is that regulatory pathway is this political trial even feasible? Um, so there's so many other considerations that they think about. And so for those faculty that are not going to be exiting with their venture, I would say in some ways, like they're welcome to learn about it, but this shouldn't be their job per se, right? It's like, this is where people who are, who want to like launch the venture and exit with it, come in like the fellows. I think the most useful piece of information or like useful quote I heard on this was from Craig Cruz, who founded our Venice and then Alda. The, is science and his, his advice to faculty is you can either be king or you can be rich. So you can either be in charge of your startup and and run it alongside your lab, or you could have your startup essentially be successful because it is a full time job and you're going to have to pick one at some point. And it is not necessarily your expertise unless you're going to really push hard and learn all of that. There have been faculty that have done that, but I think overall, like the faculty will need to decide at some point, you know, are am I going to join this venture or do I want to stay in the science?
3: Are there like general trends or tendencies that you notice amongst women, uh, academic scientists compared to men? Certainly don't want to draw uh, too many generalizations, but it might be interesting to maybe like share an anecdote Um, if you think it's appropriate regarding potentially why this disparity exists.
2: Yeah. um, So I think there there are a lot of reasons the disparity exists and we could jump into like some really broad ones, like, you know, the disproportionate amount of care for children still falls to women. And so like that extra time that they could have used to do something else and getting shunted to childcare to, I've seen arguments of like women go into sciences that end up being a lot more descriptive than like engineering style. And so the result is that you end up with less patentable technology. But I think a lot of it has to do with thinking about like, all the faculty I know speak in terms of application now, right? It's like, what does this help us do in, in real life? Like what, how does this help the world? And so I think it's more a question of sitting down with them and then figuring out how the dots connect between, you know, here is the science that I'm doing and then here is the potential application or the value World, right? You could imagine even labs that are doing like very, very distant, like science that's very distant, like say, um involved in like longevity, but in flatworms, like there could still be value there in finding biomarkers associated with longevity. I think that that is probably just that awareness, that availability is the most important thing. So at Yale, what we did was um, we started a group, I believe it's called Amplify Her Story, as well as I think we just got a women in bio CT chapter. Um, there's basically there's a huge group of women in the tech transfer office well not huge but like there's a group of very dedicated women in the tech transfer office who have spent a lot of effort to try and sort of address this challenge um because we would go talk to female faculty and are like we really don't think our science is like patentable um but thanks for talking to us and we'd be like no no it's totally like like sit down and talk about the possible applications and where there might be value in this patent mm-hmm. um and it's really a, a legwork question i think the other thing that you know, to just think about the problem from a from a descriptive point of view or from an understanding point of view, I haven't seen a lot around like the acceleration of the trajectory, right? Um, so it's like, we know that there are still fewer women than men in patenting, um, but how much has that changed? Like what's the acceleration rate in the last 10 years like is it getting better because this helps us figure out policies that work in the long term right because we're not going to have a full or final data readout for like five to ten years so it's like in the interim can we try and figure out which of these policies work best which techniques methods using year-to-year data the only place i've seen this is like osage university partners I don't know if you've heard of them but they put out actually some really interesting data um on women inventors um and i think they I think it was one of their seminars where they they noted that like in a, we'd reach parity by 2050. Um, so there you can see clearly that we've got an acceleration problem as well as an actual like difference problem, like an actual, I guess, velocity. So that's sort of the the information that we need. Like the more information, the more armed we are to try and figure out where the problems are and the pathway and address them.
3: What do you think um, the key is to accelerating it more? The, the information that I have,
2: like based on that, my Instinct is to say that the place we want to target is actually fairly high upstream. So it's like the actual submission of the patent. Uh, so going and getting faculty to submit the patents. So that would probably be the first step because there you have more patents being submitted and then more female faculty becoming inventors and then becoming entrepreneurs in the sense of like they're faculty entrepreneurs. Like in terms of if you want just more female entrepreneurs, sort of like what we you do? I think that's a different question to address. And that one is more around like the mentorship aspect of like the networks that we build, right? So like what we're doing here is incredibly valuable for building, bringing more female entrepreneurs. So for like faculty, like female faculty who want to become faculty inventors slash entrepreneurs, go talk to your tech transfer office. Go just find out who your VP is, talk to them, be like, what's the pathway to like patenting, when do you need information by, like, and then work with them closely. And I think you will already be like way better position than a majority of faculty by just actively like building that connection with them to understand what the steps would be. Cause it's their job to help figure that out. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc, you're also welcome to go tech- talk to the tech transfer office. The tech transfer office will only officially file patents only on behalf of the faculty, that does not mean you can fig- you don't you can't figure that pathway out for your faculty member. Be like, here's the paperwork, here's everything that needs to get done. Let's get this thing filed when you're publishing. I think one thing that tends to happen with academics and sort of all of us who become experts in a field is we get very used to being an expert, right? To having an answer, and when you don't have an answer, it is very anxiety-inducing, right? And so you retreat from it. We all get very used to being experts in our fields, and we shy away from learning more. Learn enough to become dangerous. <laughs>
1: So, want to switch gears a little bit and go talk more about the antimicrobial space. And so, prior to COVID, he, the the anti-infective space was, was just not doing great. Large pharma was divesting all of their infectious disease uh, divisions, and um, and many of these like smaller infectious disease companies were relying on public investment because a lot of like VC and such wouldn't wouldn't invest in these companies, but yeah, I think COVID has, has kind of changed that, too. Um, so how have you seen, now that you've been working um, with Felix Biotech for, for some time, how have you seen the public and private sectors you kind know, change their tune when it comes to infectious disease and how that applies to Felix Biotech?
2: So there are two big challenges. One of them is that from a scientific perspective, antimicrobial stewardship, is its goal is to antibiotics functional that we do have for as long as possible. So it's use other things first. Use things that, you know, are more common, um, like been using them for longer, um, which encourages them to use, to use drugs that are not, they're not on patent, like they're not newer antibiotics. Um, they're often broader spectrum, because we want to reserve the things that are new for when we absolutely need them. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And then the second aspect of it is that a lot of these infections end up getting seen in the inpatient setting. So in the U.S. healthcare system, like if you go to a doctor and have a visit and then they send you home with like a prescription, that's an outpatient setting, right? You just had an outpatient visit. The inpatient is you've got checked in the hospital, they give you the wristband, you're sitting there in the hospital on a bed. And that's where a lot of the infections happen or these patients end up because they're quite sick, right? Uh, They're going into sepsis or they have bacteremia. and so. The way we reimburse for that in the U.S. is on an inpatient lump sum. So like we pay a hospital X amount to treat an infection regardless of the actual amount of money the hospital spent on that
3: patient.
2: The hospital faces a challenge of, well, we can give this incredibly effective drug that might be newer spectrum, might be newer, but it's going to cost us $5,000. Or we can give them generic vancomycin and it's going to cost us a couple of bucks. Um, it's very hard for a hospital to say they're going to give the more expensive thing if the reimbursement they're going to get is only $3,000. So they're going to lose money on every patient they treat because we've asked our hospitals to be profit making entities. And so they too have to turn a profit to keep themselves solvent. And so these two problems were really what resulted in the KG and Melinda going bankrupt. These were companies with successful drugs on the market. People did amazing work. Um, They got them approved, and there was just not a market for them because of these two challenges. And that's why I was so excited to join Felix, was because like we're working with phages, and there you have like there's a place for both antibiotics and phages, I think, in treating uh, infectious disease. But there you have like much more precision-targeted therapeutics with fewer toxicity and off-target effects um, that you know, particularly for like chronic infections, is great for the patient.
1: So on that note, do you talk a little bit more about whatever you can about Felix's technology and like how the, the sphage technology kind of fits in within antibiotic space and paradigm?
2: Yeah. So for Felix Biotechnology, we, there's sort of two key things that set us apart. Um, ultimately, we're we're a company that edits and tunes microbiomes, right? So you can imagine infectious disease is actually is like an extreme example of a microbiome dysbiosis, right? You have one microbe, it's causing a lot of problems. So the great thing about phages, as I mentioned, they have the precision essentially of a scalpel to go into the microbiome and remove a species or even like a strain within a species because of how they identify their targets, right? They're binding to surface receptors that might be to there are single species, or subspecies, in some cases actually multiple species. And really, if you want to edit that microbiome, what you've got to do is you've got to understand the targets that they're finding you. So there have been many phage companies over the years. You know, hundred year old technology. It's still being it was it was used in sort of the Eastern Europe while we in the West moved toward using small molecule antibiotics because they fit better into our manufacturing system. So the question is like, what has changed, right? It's like, why now? so the the big there are two big differences there. one of them is sort of broadly we've pushed molecular biology and production of biologics to the point where you know phages will are considered biologics, like we can actually make them with better reliability, purify them, understand the biology around you what know, they're binding to better than ever before and then the other big challenge with phages is that we phages are a strong selective pressure, right so if you take a step back, like what is a phage it's a selfish genetic element and it's trying to make more of itself at the expense of a host so host populations really don't want that, um, right and so there's a strong selective pressure when you introduce phage and you get phage resistance very quickly. Most companies deal with this by producing phage cocktails. you sort of try and cover as the the host range in as many different ways as possible. but for chronic diseases we we have concern that that's you know, a problem, right? Because you're giving this patient a whole bunch of stuff that they may not necessarily need. And then if the bug evolves resistance, you end up in the same place you were before where this patient has no options. So in chronic diseases like pseudomonas infections and cystic fibrosis, this is not the best option for the patient. So the thing that makes you Felix unique is that we drive trade-offs with that. So we looked at evolution and we're like, this isn't advantageous. How do we turn evolution to our advantage? And the answer lies in the targeting, right? If you understand what that phage is going to bind to, you can start introducing sort of catch-22s to the, to the pathogen population, right? It's like you could be phage resistant, but that phage is going to target your antibiotic resistance pump, right? So it's an efflux pump that's pumping antibiotic. It could target what, like a virulence factor that enables you to create a comfortable home in the patient lung. So once you do that, the pathogen can evolve resistance to the phage, but it's lost a key virulence aspect, or it's lost antibiotic resistance. So you end up driving the evolution of the population in the patient to a state of less threat to the patient. So that was the key technology um, from Yale. The question then becomes: How do you find out what phage are binding to what target, right? So because that's that's like a, a, a huge problem it's for for phage. Work—it's you know, one skilled person who could spend months characterizing a single phage. So the second sort of unique value for Felix is we have this library technology out of Lawrence Berkeley National Labs that we throw the phage on the population, and it doesn't just tell us what the phage is binding to; it tells us sort of what sort of evolutionary pressure is being exerted on every single gene in that organism. So we can see. sort of predict what is going to happen evolutionarily to the pathogen population when it's exposed to phage. Um, And that lets us pick the sort of top quality targets from those phages to then turn into clinical stage assets
3: just wanted to ask you for any general advice you'd love to share with our listeners who maybe are in the midst of a PhD or in the midst of graduate school. And in addition to you know traveling the world right after and, and experiencing life, what else would you recommend for them who you know might want to consider starting a venture in, in life science? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So definitely uh, two things. First one is this is You know, you you probably feel like you have to be in lab, and all of your brain power needs to go toward your next paper or what set of experiments you're doing. But take that time, take take set aside like especially in like your later years, third or fifth year, 10 to 30 percent of your time to explore what you want to do in your career. I think increasingly, as we see, there's not enough academic positions. Universities have realized that they need to give students these options, and so many of them have consulting clubs. They have like sort of Mural clubs, they have biotech, they have policy, like there's the policy fellowship, outreach clubs, like all of these things are different opportunities for you to go and figure out what it is you want to do next, and be thoughtful about you know each experience. Like when I was in graduate school, uh, I, the joke slash that wasn't a joke was I held a different job, second job every year. My first year, I took way too many classes because I was catching up on, on sort of molecular biology criteria. Second year, I was a resident coordinator um, in graduate housing. Third year, I was a writing fellow at the writing center. Fourth year, I was I was doing YGCC, um, and then fifth year, I TA'd a course at the School of Management um, on influence persuasion. So like, I took the opportunity to go and do a second thing um, every year, and I was very transparent with my PI about that. they were not necessarily always like, again, the happiest about it, but I explained here is why I'm doing the things that I am doing in terms of my professional development. And as long as I meet these criteria, I'd like to keep doing them. As long as you're still getting data, as long as we're still on a publication timeline that is amenable to both of us. So being very, I think, transparent about that and what your long-term goals are is really helpful. The second thing I would say is particularly for women, um, for my like, one of the things I've learned along the way is you don't have to get along with everyone, and that is totally okay if you don't click with somebody who says they're going to be like someone refers you to somebody who they think is going to be a great mentor. It turns out it just doesn't work out. If you just don't like working with someone. That's fine. Don't work with them. Like like, finish what you need to do with them and move on to a different project where you aren't working with them because life is too short to spend energy working on projects with people that you don't like working with. And it doesn't mean that they are bad or evil people. It just means you do not click, and I'm sure like they they guaranteed click with somebody else. It's not a, there's no moral judgment associated with it. It is merely a evaluation that you're going to do much more with the energy that you have if you love the people you're working with, and it's like a ton of fun to work with them versus someone who you find it a chore to work with. Uh, particularly for us women, we feel like we have to get along with everyone, quote unquote. This is something that like a lesson I learned, I think later than I would have wanted to learn it. And now I I make a point of working with people that I enjoy working with.
0: Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at Thea HC, and on our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park and Asim Jane. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm/thea-hc/support.